Well, I have a new answer to the question why um, Protestants become Greek Orthodox. It's from having to go to three lectures right in a row. <laughs> well, I want to turn with you now. Um, we've, we've talked in a, a somewhat general way about the way Reformed Christians read church history and how they read the Bible as a whole. Uh, but I, I want to turn now to... Um, what is the distinctive center of Reformed thought uh, about uh, worship? And that distinctive center goes under the label, usually, of the regulative principle. I um, have yet, in my historical studies, to find the origin of that expression. Maybe some of you know. I don't. If anybody knows, I'd appreciate knowing. Uh, I have not, thank you, I have not come across that expression in the 17th century authors that I have read. It may well be a 17th century uh, a phrase, but I haven't found it yet. It's certainly not um, a, a phrase widely used in the middle of the 17th century at the time of the Westminster uh, Confession. Um, and um, yet it is a word, a phrase that has... Uh, uh, been uh, rather common, particularly amongst uh, Presbyterians um, in recent times, which is to say the last two or three hundred years. And um, it's really a rather simple phrase in its uh, meaning. It, it rests upon the Latin word regula, which means rule. And the regulative principle simply means that we are committed to the principle that the Scripture rules our worship. It's not really a very um, um, complicated concept. Uh, it, it really amounts to just that. We worship as the Scripture directs us. <clears throat> now, in recent years, there's been uh, some efforts made to declare that the regulative principle is really a Puritan principle and not a generally Reformed principle. Uh, and uh, part of the effort is to say, well, you know, those Puritans um, it lived in tough times. And uh, they had uh, kings to behead and uh, thrones to overthrow and uh, churches to remake and uh, bishops to throw out. Um, they, they had great works, and in the midst of those great works, they uh, got a little extreme. And uh, we, uh, we can admire the Puritans, we can appreciate the Puritans, but we, uh, we don't necessarily need to uh, um, go whole hog with them. And uh, if they got a little extreme on this business of worship, we can uh, understand maybe how that happened. But um, we, uh, we don't necessarily have to follow in that path. The, uh, the old Reformed tradition, the pre-Puritan tradition, was really... A, a, a kinder, gentler kind of Reformed Christianity. Well, um, I, I think that's an interesting historical argument, and uh, the only problem with it is that, as far as I can see, it's not true. Um, that's not to say that the Puritans agreed in the application of the, Puritan, of the uh, uh, regulative principle with everything that earlier Reformed Christianity had believed, but I would argue very vigorously that the principle itself is articulated already in John Calvin and rather vigorously and clearly articulated. Let me read to you from near the beginning of the necessity of reforming the church. 
Calvin wrote, I know how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. Now, that's the regulative principle, beloved. Whether we like it or not, that's the regulative principle. God doesn't approve of modes of worship which are not expressly sanctioned by His Word. In order to worship God, you have to have an express warrant, an express permission and direction by God to worship in that way. Calvin goes on. The opposite persuasion which cleaves to them, being seated, as it were, in their very bones and marrow, is that whatever they do has in itself a sufficient sanction, provided it exhibits some kind of zeal for the honor of God. In other words, it's okay to do it if you're enthusiastic, if you're excited. (laughs) But, since God not only regards as fruitless, but also plainly abominates whatever we undertake from zeal to His worship, if at variance with His command, what do we gain by a contrary course? Now, I think any Puritan uh, couldn't have made it more strong. God not only uh, regards worship not commanded by Him as fruitless, but He abominates it. The words of God, says Calvin, are clear and distinct. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. 1 Samuel 15.22 and Matthew 15.9. The classic Puritan texts to justify the regulative principle. Calvin goes on. Every addition to his word, especially in this matter, is a lie. Mere will worship, in quotes, is vanity. This is the decision. And and when once the judge has decided, it is no longer time to debate. When when Calvin quotes uh, the words will worship from Colossians 2.23, he is quoting the other great Puritan text for the regulative principle. So um, the Reformed tradition, from its uh, great source in the 16th century, it, it has earlier roots than the 16th century, Uh, But the Reformed uh, tradition in the theology of John Calvin finds already articulated clearly and forcefully uh, the regulative principle. 1 Samuel 15.22, Matthew 15.9, and Colossians 2.23. Now Calvin, uh, we often uh, forget was a great student of the matter of worship. Uh, We think of Calvin as a theologian, and most of us as uh, Reformed folk are inclined to think that Calvin was tremendously wise and profound and helpful as a theologian, and he was. And if we uh, extend our knowledge of Calvin a little bit, we we probably know that Calvin was a great biblical commentator, uh, almost certainly the greatest biblical commentator of the 16th century. His commentaries are still in print and still consulted by people of all uh, religious persuasions because of their profound insight into the Word of God. Um, We may remember that Calvin was a preacher, and I'm glad they have some sermons of Calvin out there. Uh, Calvin's sermons make wonderful devotional reading. He was a a popular, in the best sense of that word, and effective preacher in the 16th century. But Calvin was also a liturgist. 
uh, Calvin devoted a great deal of time and energy thinking about the theology of worship, thinking about the practice of worship, actually reforming and guiding the practice of worship in Geneva, and even spending time writing psalm tunes and psalm versifications for the sung praise of God. Uh, Calvin was concerned about worship. And it's appropriate that uh, those of us who think of ourselves as Calvinists shouldn't forget that and should remember that the great reformer had some very important things to say about worship and encourages us to think carefully about it. Now, um, let me read that verse from Colossians 2.23, to which Calvin and really the whole Reformed tradition um, turned over and over again on the matter of the regulative principle, Colossians 2.23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And there's tucked in the midst of this long verse, that little phrase in the NIV translated, self-imposed worship. The word in Greek is just one single word appearing only here in the New Testament. And uh, literally translated in some of the older translations, will worship. But I think the meaning well captured here by the, the uh, NIV, it's will worship in the sense of it's the worship that fits with my will. It's the worship I choose. It's the worship that uh, pleases me. It's the worship that I impose upon myself. Self-imposed worship. Self-chosen worship, perhaps. And Paul is clearly criticizing any such worship. We are not to engage in will worship, in self-imposed worship. We're to engage in the worship that God himself directs. Well, some people say, uh, isn't hanging a whole approach to worship on, these little, on this one word in the middle of a, of a text, isn't that uh, sort of a lot? Uh, can this little verse support all that Reformed tradition has hung upon it? And that's a fair question. We don't want to be engaged in a, a false kind of proof texting. Uh, now, I happen to be one who thinks that texts do prove things, so I don't... Uh, object to proof texting in general, uh, but we have to ask, does the text actually prove what it's claimed that it proves? And I think the only way we can do that is to to ask ourselves, uh, what is the context that we find here in Colossians uh, that leads up to this statement on the Apostles' part about will worship? And uh, if we stand back and look at... uh, the letter to the Colossians as a whole, I think we find that the Reformed reading of this text, in fact, is exactly what the book as a whole is about. There has been something of a crisis in Colossae. There has been a crisis both of holiness and of worship, and in fact, in the mind of the Apostle, these two things are intimately interconnected. The pursuit of Christian holiness is tied in to faithful, godly worship. And godly worship has consequences for the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life. You notice that uh, there in verse uh, 
23 of chapter 2. Such regulations indeed have their appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, there's the worship side, with their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. There's the pursuit of uh, holiness. Or look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. There you see worship and the humility of holiness uh, linked together again. Or uh, verse uh, 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. Don't let anyone judge you in your moral life, in your outworking of a, of a holy life in terms of what you eat, or in terms of uh, certain religious activities. Holiness and worship are interconnected, and there's been a problem in the Colossian church that uh, Paul has to address. He interconnects them uh, also, verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And here the accent is on uh, uh, holiness, on the moral dimension of the problem. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And there you see the, the connection of the moral and the worship are um, brought very closely uh, together. This is not the only place in Paul where he makes that kind of connection. We see that in Romans chapter 1 uh, at uh, verse 28 as well. Now, the problem is fairly serious. Paul is, uh, is agitated. He's not quite as agitated with the Colossians as he was with the Galatians. Uh, he couldn't wait to get at the Galatians. He pounces on them almost right from the beginning. He's so concerned about them. But uh, Paul is, is sufficiently concerned about these Colossians that by the time he gets to chapter 2 at verse 8, he can speak rather strongly to them. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. The, the, um, the Colossians are in danger of being made prisoners of false teaching. There are obvious, obviously false teachers that have, uh, uh, have come in and uh, have spoken in ways that are, are attractive, are, are persuasive. Verse 4 of chapter 2, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Someone's around with fine-sounding arguments. Someone's been making this sensible case amongst the Colossians, about what they ought to be doing, how they ought to be living, how they ought to be worshiping. And Paul's very, very concerned that these poor folk are about to be led utterly and seriously astray. And uh, we find um, four sources of this persuasive but false argument being uh, brought to bear on the Colossians. And the first is what Paul calls the principles of the world. The principles of this world, both in verse 8 of chapter 2 and in verse 20. Now, what are the basic principles of this world? Commentators are a little divided about that. It could be some kind of Gnosticism, some claim of secret knowledge. It could be some kind of nature mysticism. Uh, in any case, it's a, an appeal to some kind of claimed insight to the structure of this world. 
and in that sense it seems sensible to those people. Uh, these, are, um, these are the wise philosophers with some kind of secret knowledge and secret kind of insight into the world. Uh, these might be the New Agers of today. Uh, these are the peddlers of uh, pyramids and crystals because if you only sleep under the pyramid, you will have a whole new renewal in energy and power because there is a basic principle of correspondence between the magic shape of the pyramid and the forces and powers of this earth. So buy my pyramids and uh, you'll be healthier. You see, there's a claim of some kind of secret knowledge and people are suckers for secret knowledge. People love to think they have a secret. People love to think they have a leg up on everybody else. They love to think that they have some little insight into the structure of reality that nobody else has and these poor Colossians were being uh, suckered by the New Agers of their day. A second concern of Paul's that's uh, being appealed to is the, uh, the traditions of men, again in verse 8 and in verse um, um, 20. Hollow philosophy, deceptive philosophy based on human tradition. Now, we're not quite sure whether there are a bunch of different teachers coming in and confusing the Colossians or some uh, group of teachers has cleverly combined, cleverly combined these different strains of thought, but uh, uh, the Greeks, of course, were particularly proud. The Hellenistic world as a whole was proud of its wonderful philosophical background, of its reason, of its uh, uh, mental accomplishments, of the philosophy that had such brilliance and... Um, uh, perhaps the New Agers were combining uh, philosophy with their teaching and uh, leading people astray. Uh, pride in reason and the human mind and the human accomplishment. Uh, that's a source, Paul says, for being led astray. And you better be careful, you Colossians. Uh, don't get suckered. Don't get led astray. A third uh, concern for Paul, a third way in which the Colossians were at risk, is the misuse of the Old Testament. Or we might generalize that a little bit and say a, a false appeal to the Bible. Uh, we've already seen how in the, in the history of the church a misuse of the Old Testament was so powerful in misdirecting the worship of the church. And Paul seems to be saying that right here. There are teachers, perhaps Judaizers, who've come through and tried to lead these people astray. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These things are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Somebody had come along and said, you know, the path to spirituality for you people is to revive some of those wonderful teachings of the Old Testament about worship. Didn't God teach you those things? Wasn't it God who talked about the religious festivals of the Old Testament? Wasn't God who taught the Sabbath of the Old Covenant? What's the matter with you people? Why won't you listen to God? Why don't you keep those things? If they were good for the Jews, they're good for you. These are healthy things. They're from the law of God. And you could see sort of uh, people nodding. We might call this the Seventh-day Adventist temptation. What do the Seventh-day Adventists tell you? Well, it's right there in the Bible on the seventh day. On the seventh day. And uh, if it is not enough that it was right there in the Bible, uh, Ellen G. White had a vision where there was a halo around the seventh day. 
Um, there it is, you see. But, but Paul uh, says, no, 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 no. That, that whole calendar of the Old Testament was a pointer to Christ. It was a shadow of things to come. It's all fulfilled in Christ. Now, sometimes Calvinists get nervous over this verse of uh, uh, Colossians 2, verse um, uh, 16. Well, now, uh, doesn't that undermine our Sabbatarian theology? How many people who aren't Sabbatarian have appealed to this verse and told you, you see, right there, Paul says that the Sabbath uh, is fulfilled in Christ. Well, I, I don't think we need to get all nervous about it. I've seen some... Uh, some exegesis by Reformed scholars that get themselves all twisted into a pretzel trying to explain this verse. And, and it, it's no big problem. doesn't need any uh, hermeneutical gymnastics. It's perfectly straightforward. The seventh day Sabbath was a pointer to Christ and it is fulfilled in Christ. And this is a wonderful verse to use with your seventh day Adventist friends. The seventh day Sabbath is passed away in the coming of Christ. It is no more. It's gone. It's completed. It's fulfilled. Now, does that mean that there is no creation ordinance of one day in seven remaining? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We'll talk about that more later. But this verse is a wonderful um, antidote to any seventh-day Sabbath theology. This says as plainly and as clearly as it can that that was part of the system that is fulfilled in the coming of Christ, and we are not to get caught up in that old covenant calendar. The Old Covenant calendar is not our calendar. It is not the path of wisdom in holiness or in worship for us. Well, okay. If uh, we're not to use uh, secret knowledge, if we're not to use reason, if we're not to misuse the Old Testament, what about visions? Now, we've had the New Age answer and we've had the... Um, uh, the rationalist answer, and we've had the Seventh-day Adventist answer. This is the, the I suppose, uh, radical Pentecostal answer. Um, God is still speaking to us. Don't you believe in the Holy Spirit? This is not a crowd after lunch that looks like it much believes in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, if, uh, if the Holy Spirit uh, is alive and speaking in the time of Jesus... Uh, why isn't he still alive and speaking? What's, what's the matter with you people? And uh, uh, Paul is confronting that, interestingly enough, in his own day. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Now, what does, he, what does he mean by the worship of angels? Were these Colossians beginning to worship the angels? I think if that were true, Paul would be a lot more upset than he is. Don't worship angels. You heard it here first. It's a bad business. Uh, the angels won't like it. The angels will not be flattered. No, I, I don't think Paul is talking about worship offered to the angels. It's the worship of angels in the sense of it's worship as revealed by the angels. Worship as taught by the angels. And what Paul is saying is, uh, no, 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 no. Don't start looking for for visions and for revelations to guide you in uh, how to serve and how to uh, understand God and how to worship. Um, you really are getting fundamentally let off the path. You are being imprisoned and like slaves led to a place you don't want to go and won't be good for you. Don't listen to these false teachers. 
they are going to lead you only seriously into trouble. And uh, it's interesting, the, the particular kind of trouble that Paul is worried about, it's that old recurring human problem, legalism. Um, we, deep in our souls, long to be legalists. Give me a list and I'll try to keep it and that'll make me right with God. Pharisees didn't care even if the list was 400 items long. Give me the list and I'll try to keep it and it'll make me feel good in being right with God. Don't tell me Jesus has to do it all. Just give me a list and let me make my contribution. And that's what these Colossians were doing from the teaching of these false teachers. You see verse 21, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You see, you'll become holy if you don't handle certain things, if you don't taste certain things, if you don't touch certain things. The path to holiness, the path to true worship, is by uh, getting these regulations straight. And that's why Paul says, you see, verse 23, such regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, such regulations have an appearance of wisdom. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I always say to the students in class, you know, in the whole history of the church, I don't think there's been a single false teacher who stood up and said, I'm the false teacher. Worry about me. I'm the one who's wrong. I'm the heretic. No, they all come with an appearance of wisdom, and false teaching always has the appearance of wisdom. There's, there's often some little element of truth in false teaching. That's, that's the hook they get you with. And, and to be sure, uh, we have to cultivate holiness. Uh, we have to seek to please the Lord. And so when they came with their list, uh, it was attractive. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility. And then notice that next phrase, and their harsh treatment of the body. Now, now in that world, in that ancient world, people were predisposed to think that what matters is the spirit and the body doesn't matter. Uh, we tend to think just the other way around, especially in Southern California. It's only the body that matters and the spirit doesn't count at all. Um, if your cholesterol is right, if you're jogging, uh, if, uh, if you have the eyes done, I'm scheduled next week, um, you know, a little, little bottle of dye, and you'll stay young forever. Uh, those of you who are old enough may remember the actress Merle Oberon. She's my favorite example. By the end of her life, she could not stop smiling. She was so pulled back, there was nothing left. I don't think she could ever close her eyes. Um, eternal youth, that's, that's what we're after uh, in Southern California uh, because it's only the body that matters to an awful lot of people. Um, as I look around this crowd, we, we're not tempted to that. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Um, but in the ancient world, they didn't care about the body. The spirit was all that was important. It was the spirit that needed to be cultivated. And for many people, the way in which you could liberate the spirit was by denying the body as much as possible. Harsh treatment of the body. Luther experienced some of that in the monastery. Uh, what is the way to beat down the flesh? You see, a lot in the monastery did not distinguish the flesh from the body. 
And so Luther would uh, fast, deny the body food. That'll bring it under control. Uh, take, a, take a rope and make knots in it and beat your back until it bleeds, inflicting pain upon yourself, weakening the body. That's a way to bring it under control. And there are a lot of people who nod and say, hmm, makes sense to me. Maybe if I'm hungry enough, uh, weak enough, uh, beaten enough, I won't have the energy to sin. Uh, so harsh treatment of the body for some people, uh, more than for others, uh, seems the path of wisdom. But look at Paul's fascinating um, evaluation of the result. But these things, these regulations, these do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It's just another way of indulging yourself. It's just another way to indulge your old nature because the end of all of these things is not really a crushing of the flesh. It's a matter of pride. Boy, I really am pretty good. It, it became almost proverbial, the pride of the monks in the Middle Ages. They asserted that humility was their greatest virtue and they were so proud of being so humble. They were destroyed. And, th and that's the point Paul is making. All of this stuff that appears to be wisdom leads only to destruction. It doesn't accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. It produces no real holiness. It produces ultimately only self-indulgence. You're really only doing what flatters yourself. Because even if your back is bleeding, you're able to say, boy, aren't I doing a lot for God. Aren't I a cool guy? My back is bleeding more than any of these other monks around that I can see. I am the holiest monk around. And so you see, it does not restrain the flesh, it feeds the flesh. And that was Paul's great concern. And therefore they're being led away from Christ. And with that, that context of what's going on in chapter 2, then I think we can look back for a moment at chapter 1. Uh, you remember chapter 1 of Colossians where uh, Paul so celebrates the glories of Christ as preeminent in creation, as preeminent in the redemption of his church. Um, some have thought that these are great poems or uh, some even have, have suggested they may uh, have hymnic structure. All that may be true. Beautiful peons of praise to Christ. But why? How does this lead up to chapter 2? Well, it seems to me that Paul is following a pattern in, pattern in his letter writing here that he's followed several other times. A pattern where when he's not as upset as he was with the Galatians, uh, he sets up in the opening of the letter uh, statements that the church will certainly agree with and then he applies them in ways that the church finds surprising. Now, what is he doing in chapter 1? Well, he's talking about the glories of Christ in, in so many different ways. But one of the things, one of the themes that recurs in uh, chapter 1 is his assertion that the fullness of knowledge is to be found in Christ. Look at verse um, 9, for example, of chapter 1. Um, even before he gets into his great celebration of Christ. 
he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I'm sure as the Colossians initially read that, they said, Isn't that nice? The Apostle's praying for us. We sure need His prayers. And isn't it nice that He's praying that we might be filled with knowledge and spiritual wisdom? Isn't that, isn't that nice? But you see, what, what Paul is, is laying the foundation for is the point that that wisdom, that knowledge, comes from Christ. It doesn't come from the principles of this world. It doesn't come from a misuse of the Old Testament. It doesn't come from human philosophies. It doesn't come from angels. It comes from Christ. Christ is the beginning of creation. All the principles of the world are known by Him. Christ is the foundation of human reasoning. Any, any reasoning anybody can do is found better in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Christ is the one whom the angels adore. At every point, you see, Paul is saying, look, you dummies, if you need wisdom, you find it in Christ. There's nothing lacking in Christ. There's nothing failing in Christ. He does not need to be supplemented in any way. And so he has uh, encouraged these uh, Colossians earlier on to look to Christ. Listen to the beginning of chapter 2. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. If you want a little secret knowledge, dig in Christ. The fullness of wisdom and knowledge is to be found in Him. That's what Paul labors to say. And you see, then the question we have is, all right, if we want wisdom and knowledge in Christ, where do we find it? And Paul, again, I think, directs us here. It's to be found in Christ's Word. It's to be found in Christ's Word, not in our imaginations, not in our wisdom, but as he says in chapter 3 at verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's the Word of Christ? This is the Word of Christ. This is the Word of Christ. Let this Word dwell in you richly. You see, Paul's religion is a Word-centered religion. It is a, a religion that is that, confident that all that we need for worship and godly living is to be found in the Word. Now, I've belabored this point because the regulative principle has been so regularly attacked in our time in particular. But I would suggest the regulative principle is not just this one word in Colossians 2.23. It's, it's part and parcel of the whole argument of the book of Colossians and of the New Testament as a whole. The word tells us, Paul says in 2 Timothy, all that we need for godliness and for righteous living. That includes worship. And it's out of that teaching of the Word that our Reformed forebears 
you see, insisted on what we call the regulative principle. And we find that principle not only in the words of Calvin, but we find it uh, in the uh, confessional standards of Dutch Reformed Christianity. I, I find uh, particularly in our time, uh, Dutch Reformed Christians saying over and over again, oh, the regulative principle is a Presbyterian thing. It's not part of the Dutch Reformed tradition. Well, that's not true. What does the Heidelberg Catechism say? Uh, question 96, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? And the answer is that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. That's the regulative principle, that we are not to worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. The Belgian Confession, Article 32, sealed with the blood of a Dutch martyr, says, we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, whereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatever. We, introduce, we reject all human inventions in worship. That's the regulative principle. Now, the Puritans uh, fought for that principle. The Puritans loved that principle. Uh, in many ways, one can say that one of the great precipitating causes of the English Civil War was the regulative principle and the passion that uh, English Puritans and Scotch Presbyterians had that the, uh, uh, the, uh, the dregs of a popish book would not be imposed upon them, as they like to put it. And yet it is amazing, you know, for all of the, the shouting and stomping we hear about the regulative principle, that when we turn to the Westminster Confession, written in those days of polemic and of war, how modest, how restrained, how brief is the statement of the regulative principle. Have you really thought about that? Probably not. It's the kind of thing historians think about. But, you know, it is really true. Um... Uh, chapter 21, section 1 of the uh, Westminster Confession. L listen how moderate and how brief this is. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good to all, unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. There it is, almost exactly the words of Calvin, of the Heidelberg Catechism, of the Belgic Confession. No endless long elaboration stated briefly, succinctly, straightforwardly. And um, we, need, we need to prize that principle. Now, what I think is sometimes mistaken among us is that once we are agreed about the principle, and I hope we can be agreed about that, that doesn't ensure that we will be agreed about all the ways in which that principle is applied. And uh, we, we need to think carefully about the application of the principle. We need to care about the application of the principle. But we mustn't lose the principle because we're sometimes disagreed about how to apply it. 
the principle must continue to inspire us and unite us. And so when we have a disagreement, if you and I disagree about the application of the regulative principle, how do we seek to solve that disagreement? Well, the obvious way is to form a new denomination. <laughs> but there is a better way. And, and the better way is to go back and study the Scripture together. If, if we can't agree about what the Scripture teaches, yet we are agreed that the Scripture does teach all we need to know about worship, then the solution is the relatively simple one of going back and studying the Scripture together. But you see, if, if, uh, if we don't agree about that, if, if, we, if we claim that creativity can direct worship, or tradition can direct worship, or revelation, immediate present revelation can direct worship, then, then there's no hope of agreeing because there's no place to go back to. There's no place to unite us. But Christ has given us His Word, and so He unites us in His Word. Now, the confession um, does say a, a few other things about worship that are important to bear in mind. It makes, in chapter 1 and section 6, a distinction between worship and the circumstances of worship. And it uses that distinction uh, to help uh, clarify the application of the principle. And again, there's been a fair level of confusion about this. I think more confusion than there needs to be. Uh, it's, it's not a complicated business. Uh, worship is one thing, our Puritan ancestors said, and the circumstances of worship are another. Now, how did they define circumstances? The circumstances are the things necessary to all human society. And in those matters, we, matters, we have a, a measure of freedom in terms of Christian prudence. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, um, the Bible doesn't tell us, for example, what time on Sunday we have to worship. That is not an integral element of worship. And yet it is helpful if we all arrive at about the same time. <laughs> it's especially helpful to preachers. And so, as a circumstance in worship, the church is free to choose a time. Uh, we're not absolutely uh, uh, bound by time. We have a certain flexibility with time. Um, there ought to be prudence about time. If you live in a hot climate, you shouldn't worship at three in the afternoon. That's a matter of prudence. You don't need uh, to say the regular principle tells me that specifically. It's a circumstance. Uh, if we're going to worship, we probably need something to sit on. That's a circumstance. We have some freedom. It's not wrong to have a comfortable chair to sit on. Um, that's a circumstance. Whether we sing out of a book or from an overhead projector, that's a circumstance. It, it, it's not a matter of worship per se. Uh, th there were some Anabaptists who said you shouldn't have Bibles in, in a worship service because the, the Bible nowhere says you should have a Bible in a worship service. And, and the parents would say, what are you guys talking about? It's a circumstance. If, if the Bible's going to be read, it's helpful to have a book. Uh, that's a circumstance. Um, but when it comes to what is worship, it's the Bible that tells us what is worship. And the, the, the confession lists very briefly some of the things that are worship. Uh, prayer is worship. Bible reading is worship. Preaching is worship. Sacraments are worship. Praise is worship. 
Is this complicated, beloved? No, it's, it's really not complicated. Oh, well, says some. But um, if you're going to sing, you have to sing a particular something. Does the Bible tell you, even if you're an exclusive psalm singer, you have to choose one psalm over against another? Uh, ha, 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 the regular principle doesn't work. That's silliness. Uh, if the Bible tells us we have to sing, then it's a some sense of circumstance that we have to choose something to sing, some particular thing to sing, something that we're all going to sing together. Th- these are distinctions, I think, that uh, uh, don't work, aren't, aren't the problem people make them out to be. It's, it's very simple. Worship is what the Bible tells us it is. And it need, we need a roof over our head if it's going to rain. That's a circumstance. Now, the bad rap, and I'm wrapping up, the bad rap that the regulative principle has gotten is this. All the regulative principle amounts to is that it makes a great long list of a bunch of things I'd like to do and I can't do. The regulative principle is just one more example of grumpy Calvinism uh, telling me I can't do all the fun things I want to do. Had that been said, maybe it was said, to our Puritan forebears, they'd have, they'd have scratched their heads and said, no, 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 you're not getting it. The is the guarantee of our freedom in Christ. And until we see the, re- the regular principle fundamentally as liberating, we haven't got it. Because what our Puritan forebears resented, chafed under, was coming to church and being asked to do as acts of worship a bunch of things that a bunch of men had invented. And you women really are exculpated from this one. A bunch of things that a bunch of men had invented. And the Puritans said, we ought to have the freedom to come to church and not be asked to do anything God hasn't asked us to do. That's the glorious liberty of the children of God. No human authority can stand in judge of your conscience in the worship of God. No human authority can ask you to worship in a way that God hasn't asked you to worship. And this is a cornerstone of our freedom in Christ. That when we come together to worship, we should have to do, we should be asked to do, we should be expected to do only what God wants us to do. Now, as we'll see as we go along, that doesn't solve every problem. That doesn't mean there won't be disagreements. And, and it, is, it has sometimes happened that uh, uh, the, the only uh, way we apply the, the regular principle is to form new denominations and to constantly fight and bicker with one another. That's not what the regular principle is about either. Uh, John Calvin didn't get worship the way he wanted it in Geneva. And he lived with that. Uh, the, the, the point of the regular principle is not to make us all quarrelsome with one another and all divided from one another, but its point is to drive us back into the Word and to keep asking, what does God want of us? What does God act of, ask of us? What does God direct us to do? What, can we, what is clear out of the Word of God? And, and, and when you have those great elements listed in the, uh, in, in the confessional, though they're not called elements, they're just called the worship, um, what's so complicated about prayer? What's so complicated about preaching? What's so complicated about reading the Word of God? What's so 
complicated about praising God. Well, that does get a little more complicated. But these, these essential moments of worship are not that difficult. And we need to preserve the freedom that these things that God has told us he wants would be the heart, the core of our worship. Let's, uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful to you that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, and you've not left us to our own imagination and devices. And we pray that we would be a people who uh, long to know your word and long to live according to it and are eager to know it better. And we are thankful for the great heritage that is ours that says worship is a special privilege of the people of God. Worship is so important to you, O Lord our God, that you have told us specifically how you would be worshipped. And we pray that we might more and more conform our hearts and our minds and our actions to that great revelation of your word. Thank you for it, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.